oftentimes you can you can read almost verbatim the number of species on earth is one of the most fundamental things to know in sciences and i'm always thinking to myself no it's not because there is no such thing as a single number of species for the very reasons i just gave you Welcome to the Case for Conservation podcast, where we explore biodiversity conservation and the environment more broadly and interrogate conventional wisdom for the sake of a more robust case for conservation. I'm your host, Andre Mardo. Species. We take them for granted as the main currency of biodiversity. But how many of us really know what species are? And is it possible that we attach too much importance to them, especially in the context of conservation? Over centuries, taxonomists have categorized and recategorized life forms and graphically presented their relatedness in the form of a so-called tree of life. The trunk of the tree is common to all life on Earth. It branches into major taxa, like the kingdoms of plants, animals, and fungi, and then continues branching into increasingly more specific taxa, phylum, class, order, family, genus, etc., until near the branch tips are species and subspecies. The more specific the classification, the less obvious it is where to draw the line between one taxon and another, or between different levels of taxa. Taxonomy, as it turns out, is as much an art as it is a science. In this episode, Frank Zakos does an excellent job at explaining taxonomy and the ways in which it's misunderstood, and he embellishes his explanation with a wealth of fascinating examples. Frank is head of the mammal collection at the Natural History Museum in Vienna, Austria, and has written well over 200 articles and other publications on taxonomy and related topics. I began by asking Frank what a species is, and how straightforward or messy is it to assign species status to an organism. Well, taxonomy indeed can be can be messy and contentious, but the level of contentment or discontent the level of discontent and of uh, non-consensus is not distributed equally across the tree of life, if you will. So the, the higher groups, as they are sometimes called, so for example, mammals, no one doubts that you know mammals are a group that is worth recognizing. If you zoom in, however, into the tree of life, you will find the population level uh, the meta population level. So you will, you will have individuals that are ever more closely related to one another. And at some point, there is what I usually call a gray area where it is not really straightforward whether you can call something one or two. Now, if you think about that, this is exactly what you would expect based on evolution. So if any organism could be unequivocally assigned to a certain species without any overlap with something else, mm -hmm. I would be a creationist, in fact. That would be a very, very strong argument against evolution. It follows logically from the historical fact of evolution that you have every single step along the line between basically the same and completely different. Mm -hmm. So if you then zoom in into that area where well, you know, populations have been separate for some time. 
it becomes ultimately at some level a matter of choice whether you call that already a species or not quite a species mm -hmm. to give you an example of everyday uh, life um, think of languages um, and the question of whether two people speak the same language or whether they speak different languages so do they speak dialects of the same language or do they speak different languages it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. So uh, depending on, I mean, the, the, the usual criterion for, for being the same language is mutual intelligibility. So if, if people understand each other, then it's the same language. But intelligibility comes in degrees, right? Mm -hmm. My wife is Dutch. I'm, 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 I was born and raised in Germany. Uh, Dutch and German are, are fairly similar. If I speak to a Dutch person and the Dutch person tells me, if you want to go to the cafe, you need to go straight ahead for 200 meters then you see a big tree and then you turn left and then you find the restaurant. I can understand that. I cannot talk about, about philosophy with that person. Mm -hmm. Or if, if he or she took, talked to me about philosophy, I wouldn't understand that anymore. So do I understand the other language? Well, that depends. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's the exact same thing um, with species. So uh, one should not get hung up too much on these categories. You know, if you know what's happening biologically, Ultimately, it may not matter so much if, if it's one species or two species. Mm -hmm. Are Neanderthals the same species as Homo sapiens? So is it Homo sapiens sapiens and is it Homo sapiens neanderthalensis? Um, or is it Homo sapiens or Homo neanderthalensis? It doesn't change one bit about the biology of the, mm -hmm. of the, of the two. That is not to say that this doesn't matter, but it is important to realize that these things vary continuously. So, all the differences that uh, that are normally used in taxonomy vary continuously. Be it morphological similarity, genetic similarity, even interbreeding comes in degrees. I mean, the, the standard textbook example is horses and, and donkeys. Mm -hmm. And because the mule is sterile, the two are two different species. Well, in fact, there have been fertile mules. Mm. So how many fertile mules do you need to not think of horses and donkeys as two different species. Now, that's obviously a rhetorical question because there is no objective way of saying, well, it needs two or 2,313. Mm -hmm. So our language is discrete. We pigeonhole things. We, we do this not just in taxonomy. I mean, in, we are taxonomists. All of us are taxonomists, whether we know it or not. Mm -hmm. Our whole life is about classification and pigeonholing and, and you know, making categories. And Reality varies usually continuously, and our, our categories are discrete. And sometimes there is tension between the two. Um, no one doubts that a rhino and an elephant are two different species. But whether the forest elephant and the savanna elephant are two different species, you're moving into, you're zooming into that gray area, and at some point it becomes a little bit arbitrary where you where you draw the line. And then there are all these different concepts, but these different concepts basically just disagree at what level you should call something a different species. Right. Everyone agrees that species are usually considered to be, you know, separately evolving groups of populations, but how separately evolving they need to be to, to be granted species status. Mm -hmm. Again, um, there is a lot of, lot of arbitrariness in there. Mm -hmm. And maybe not completely on topic, but a few things you said, they reminded me of an example and it's probably a bit dated. Maybe you can provide a better one, but, I remember hearing about the, I think it was the herring gull that you find in the, yeah. the UK. And so... Oh, the ring, the ring species. 
Right. So if you follow the species around the world, yeah. Um, if you sort of follow sort of country by country, going yeah. from the I think from the UK, Eurasia, um, you detect very slight differences, but in, you keep on detecting these slight differences. And by the time you've gone all the way around the world, you get back to where you started. You've got another species which lives yeah. uh, together with the first one. Is that more or less right, or am I oversimplifying? Well, this it? is the, the this is the concept of ring species, where where basically in one direction any two neighboring populations interbreed mm -hmm. and you have you have a gradient of dissimilarity mm -hmm. um, and by the time you've done, you've come full circle the two endpoints are no longer compatible All right now the herring gull was the textbook example of these ring species it turned out to be a wrong example it was re it was it was refuted uh -huh. there are however other examples of this kind uh -huh. i think it's also in southeast asia birds some warblers philoscopus species i think so you have that phenomenon, but again, what do you make of it? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, taxonomists, this is this is heaven for evolutionary biologists. They study differentiation, they study reproduction, uh -huh. and it's hell for taxonomists because they have their drawers that they want to, you know, put things in, and then they, they run into trouble. But nature doesn't really care so much about whether taxonomists are happy or evolutionary biologists are happy. Yeah. Things are just the way they are, and nature varies continuously in in most cases and our taxonomies are necessarily probably because our language is discrete our taxonomies are discrete as well and we have to just you know live with the fact that our taxonomies are just an approximation of reality right and so in the world of uh, taxonomy and taxonomists you have these different species concepts and i was actually mm -hmm. amazed to read in in one of your papers is that there were about 30 different species concepts. Uh, I was blown away yeah. by that because I thought that there were sort of five or six. No, no. I mean, it, it depends. Some of them are very similar. So just like with species, you can also lump species concepts into one concept with sort of sub-concepts and then the number changes a little bit. Mm -hmm. But my my most recent count is 35. But it doesn't, it doesn't really matter because um, most of them no one cares about. They were published once and then mm -hmm. um, it's... You have two populations, and they and they they get sundered, they get separated, and then along the way they become more and more dissimilar. And it really is then the question: Where do you draw the line? And these different concepts, they all agree that you, that you should have these two different different lineages. They just disagree on when exactly you can start calling them two different lineages. Mm -hmm. That's the content of the criterion, the species concept, and they differ. Some are well, they readily accept two different species early on. Others are a bit more conservative. But you can have 35 biologists with, with different species concepts. You can have them agree on every single biological fact, and they will still come up with different taxonomies. Mm -hmm. This is what I mean by the, the arbitrary element or the arbitrary dimension. So mm -hmm. taxonomy is really a twofold enterprise. You look at the distribution and the patterns of biodiversity, you find these lineages, mm -hmm. and that is science as hard as it can get. And you can, you know, you have all your modern machinery of whole genome sequencing, of CT imaging, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And you can, you can run all these things uh, on your organisms and, and you will, you will find very, very slight differences and you will find patterns of distribution and patterns of biodiversity. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second part, is 
okay, and now translate this pattern into species. And that's where the arbitrary element comes into play. Mm -hmm. I like analogies. I've given you the analogy with languages. Actually, my favorite analogy, and one that a colleague once uh, told me, it's actually mountains. If you look at a, at a, at a mountain range, you can have two geographers uh, and you can ask them, okay, analyze this geographically. And what they will do is they will probably put a grid on this mountain range and then they will do, you know, they will, they will measure altitudes, elevational measures, that kind of thing. Mm. And they will both come back and they will, you know, if they use the same instruments and the same science, they will come up with basically the same results. They have the same grid and they will tell you, okay, in, in grid A, the, the elevation is this with the coordinates like that. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's hard science. And then you ask the two geographers, how many mountains do you see? Mm -hmm. And then they have to translate this, this pattern of altitude of elevational, you know, differences into mountains. And for some, you know, two peaks that are very close to one another, they say, well, for me, this is two mountains. And the other one says, no, this is one mountain with two summits, right? This is exactly the same thing in taxonomy. So the first part is really the hard science. And the second part contains an element of arbitrariness where taste comes into play. Mm. And there are just different different attitudes towards well it's called lumping and splitting in taxonomy yeah. so yeah this is it is however important to see that that this level of arbitrariness it is confined to this gray area uh -huh. that's what i meant when i said you know no one doubts that a rhino and an elephant are two species yeah the, the mountain range example i think demonstrates the whole idea of lumping and splitting quite clearly so lumping being the tendency to call things the same and splitting the tendency to call things different right yeah exactly and so those, so those are two kind of ends of a spectrum i suppose but then they also cut across the species concepts i guess but and, and i don't want to dwell too long on the species concepts I, I think you know you've made the point that it's it has limited importance but, but could would you mind just kind of explaining the most important species concepts perhaps the two or three that are you know, that, that um, are the most prominent and have the most impact and uh, perhaps the ones that you agree or disagree with the most. Yeah, I mean, that's a bit that's a bit difficult. You you mentioned the spectrum and that's a that's a very good point to illustrate a different species concept. So along the splitting lumping continuum mm -hmm. at the two endpoints, at close at least to one of the one of the um, the, the lumping endpoint uh, would be what is known as the biological species concept. Uh -huh. That's sort of the textbook species concept also in in high school books you know any two individuals that can have fertile offspring are the same species those that can't are different species mm -hmm. that is prone to lumping because we know from experience also that you know in separation million years are millions of years after separation if for example humans artificially bring animals together back together they can still interbreed mm -hmm. so this would be at one end or, or there there's an, an even more lumpy species concept, but that's not nearly as, as well known. At the other end of the spectrum, so the splitting end, you have a certain version of what is called the phylogenetic species concept. I've called it the diagnosability version of the phylogenetic species concept. And this one is very prone to splitting. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the content is that any two populations that show consistent differences are two species. Um, that has actually led some to describe two different tiger species because they found that, you know, the Sumatra tigers on the island, 
they differ in three base pairs of a certain part of the genome, mm-hmm. and they differ so um, diagnostically, meaning all the Sumatran ones have these three mutations and none of the others do. And that's enough for them, applying this criterion, for, for them to call them different species. Mm. Now, this has been this has been ridiculed, but one should not forget that, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm not an adherent of that species concept, mm-hmm. but it is based on a biological reality, maybe a trivial biological reality, but whether something is trivial or not, again, lies in the eye of the beholder. What I find trivial, someone else might not find trivial. Mm-hmm. So all of these species concepts are based on biological realities. Mm-hmm. Whether you want this particular biological reality to be the reality that decides the species status is a different question. But that is not really a scientific question. That's mm-hmm. rather a matter of, you know, taxonomic philosophy. Mm-hmm. So I think people shouldn't ridicule each other for applying different species concepts. I do think that people should pay less attention to whether something is called a species or not. Just, you know, look at the raw data, look at the grid with the elevational data. If you want to learn something about the landscape, that will tell you a lot more than whether you ask a geographer, how many mountains do you see? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we should, we should get that. This is a lot more difficult and you need a lot more data for that. Cause if you, if you want to do your science, including your conservation biology, it's very easy to just take lists of species. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they look so scientific because, you know, they have these italicized names of genus and species. And, and then you have X many species here and only Y many species there. Mm-hmm. That seems a straightforward uh, approach. And it's, it's certainly easier to, to get that kind of data, but that may not tell you at all, uh, much about the underlying biodiversity mm-hmm. and the uniqueness of certain, certain parts of biodiversity. Mm-hmm. I wonder though, you know, it sounds like you're saying that the differences between the species concept are not that important, but you've also spent quite a lot of your time writing about them and opposing certain concepts and supporting others. So why do you think it's important to do that? I mean, is it just because within the field there needs to be, you need to kind of keep striving towards perfection, or does it have serious consequences for conservation as well? Well, I have to say that I've I've sort of mellowed out over the years. I've, I've, come, <laughs> uh, I've come to be uh, less hung up on species, whether something is a species or one species or two species or three species. Uh-huh. I, I do not have a favorite species concept anymore, really. I, I really think the way to go is to, to move away from the species as a category that tells you all you need to know mm. and move to the, to the underlying data that, you know, let certain people to think that this is a species or not. Mm-hmm. In conservation biology, but also in, in evolutionary biology. And, and when I give talks or in, in my lectures, I give examples of how this can actually, you know, misrepresent scientific analyses, how this can lead to flawed inferences. Um, there are many, many, many examples. Um, when you say this, you mean, um, using the species, using the species as the goal, as the, as, as the yardstick for conservation, for evolution. Mm-hmm. So, you know, People love quantitative analyses, mm-hmm. and then they often use species richness, so number of species, as a measure of diversity. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I'm a mammal person, and so uh, 10 years ago there was an outcry because there was a, a taxonomic book that was published, and it doubled the number of bovidae, so the antelope cattle 
sheep, etc., mm-hmm. uh, from roughly 140 to 280 species. Wow. Not a single new organism was discovered. It was just splitting uh, species into, mm-hmm. in one case, splitting one species into 11. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to see if you if you compare diversity based on species numbers. If you, for example, if you want to know which group is more diverse, the the bovids or I don't know the deer, the cervids, right? So, and then you look at species numbers, and you happen to take this taxonomic reference book for the cattle species and, and, and related species, and you say, oh, these are two hundred and eighty. Mm-hmm. And then you take a, a, a book on deer, and and the person who wrote the deer book is more of a lumper than a splitter, mm-hmm. and they only come up with a hundred. Um, they say, oh, there are two point eight times more bovids than cervids. If the bovid guy had done the cervids, he might have ended up with 280 species as well. Mm-hmm. This is not what we should be doing as scientists. This is a slippery slope and it taints and, well, basically it damages our quantitative analyses. And mm-hmm. with sci- with uh, conservation, it's the same. There is a nice example that I always give and, it, and I, I've even uh, taken the, the headline of that, of that piece. It's called Taxonomy as Destiny. Mm-hmm. It was a an accompanying piece to an article in Nature, I think, in 1990 or something. Mm-hmm. And the article in Nature was about um, a very unique reptile, the Tuatara. It's a mm. it's called a living fossil in New Zealand. It's a very old lineage, and it has no close living relatives, and it only occurs in New Zealand. And the question was, is that one species on New Zealand or is it two or three? Mm-hmm. And this has changed over time, also with different you know, taxonomic philosophies. So at the time, 30 years ago, it was considered a single species, but it had been considered three different species before. And so one of these populations that previously had been a species in its own right was on the verge of extinction. But in the taxonomic framework at the time, it was only a population of a species that was much more widely distributed. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing in the biology of the species changed with the taxonomy. But whether we whether we agree that it is a single species or two or three different species mm-hmm. makes a difference for that very population. Because if it's considered a, a unique species, then a lot more conservation efforts uh, will be directed towards it. If it's considered, you know, just another population of species X, yeah. it will not be. But I mean, it's the same animals, right? So it's this framework in which taxonomy really makes a difference. And sometimes the most crucial and the most brutal difference at all, whether, you know, extinction or or existence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was thinking about the black rhino example. I don't know how... I, I've well, it's sort of... the, the white rhino, probably. With the northern, the northern white rhino and the southern white rhino. Well, actually, I think within within Southern Africa, I think at some stage at least there were three subspecies of black rhino or considered to be three subspecies. And so there was kind of some conservationists were saying, you know, we should just think of these as being all the same, let them interbreed. Yeah. You know, because the species as a whole, the species group as a whole could be on its way out. And then others were saying, you know, no, we need to preserve each of these separate subspecies. Yeah. And of course, yeah. we haven't even spoken about subspecies yet. Yeah. But uh, I guess that's another way in which conservation comes into it, right? The purists versus the... Yeah. yeah, yeah. The conservation argument could be favored by splitting or by lumping. Yeah. Um, but, but I mean, generally speaking, do you think that conservationists are 
tending to to split or to lump uh, for that purpose you know for the purpose of conserving populations and then that backfiring on them somehow have you seen well, that i've i've heard from a colleague of mine who works on uh, new world mammals that he was contacted by a conservationist who had collected material from i think an area in south america and they wanted him to study these and they were pretty open about it they said if this could be described as a new species, this would really enhance conservation of that area mm. because then we have sort of a flagship species that only occurs here. Ah, um, and so that's for that's not not for the species, but for the area actually. So that's yeah, another element. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. So that would be the people have dubbed this the conservation species concept. I mean, sort of mm -hmm. uh, not really in earnest, but yes. Uh, and I mean, they do have an argument there, of course. But this is not how how taxonomy should should work, right? I mean. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if you look at the data and the data are sort of equivocal, you are in that gray area and in lots of other areas, maybe related species, they've all been split based on that level of, of divergence, of dissimilarity. Mm -hmm. Then again, in this gray area, you can go either way. There's no objective telling who's right and who's wrong. It's... Yeah, it's it's just like with the mountains or or with delimiting your own family, right? We're all related to one another. Mm -hmm. And if you ask whose family is bigger, that's a bit of a difficult question because where do you draw the line? I mean, first cousins are probably family, second, third, 39. Mm -hmm. That is an arbitrary threshold that you will have to make there. And it's it's the same with, with the tree of life. We're all we're all related with one another and where you draw the line. And, and call one thing a species and the other thing only a subspecies is in some cases really in that gray area is, arbitrary. is uh, necessarily arbitrary. Mm -hmm. I kind of hesitate to ask this question, but uh, seeing as we've been talking about subspecies, is there at least a definitional difference between a species and a subspecies? Because, you know, at least according to the biological species concept, a species, as you said, is two animals that can produce fertile offspring. And I know, of course, that's not sort of the be-all and end-all. But if you yeah. consider that as the species concept, then then what, what is the meaning of a subspecies then? Well, I mean, subspecies are no less controversial than, than species. And some people say we should get rid of subspecies anyway. Either if they are good entities, they should be called species. If they're not, they should not be called anything. Right. Mm -hmm. That's more the splitting aspect. So, you know raising subspecies to species rank mm -hmm. the the usual definition within the biological species concept that you just mentioned so if anything that can produce fertile offspring is one species what is a subspecies that's then usually geographically separate populations that are different but they are not so different that they cannot have fertile offspring mm -hmm. but again if you look at the diagnosability version of the phylogenetic species concept that would be two species already right um, and then, and there, there are other subspecies definitions, sort of statistical subspecies definition. How how many individuals of one group have to be different? To what extent from that many individuals of a different population? But all of this is ultimately it's an arbitrary level of dissimilarity. So, when it comes to the overall number of species, it seems like estimates vary quite considerably, <laughs> and of course. Um, yeah, depending on on uh, whether you include the microorganisms, it can get even more complicated. But um, yeah. what, what's your take on how many species there are, and what proportion of those is known to science, and where are the key gaps in in our knowledge? I guess yeah. the the smaller you get, the the bigger the gaps are. Uh, I'm assuming. Yeah, I may have a, a slightly unorthodox view on that. There are endless papers on 
species numbers in certain groups and then also overall species numbers. And uh -huh. oftentimes you can you can read almost verbatim the number of species on Earth is one of the most fundamental things to know in sciences. Mm -hmm. And I'm always thinking to myself, no, it's not. Because there is no such thing as a single number of species for the very reasons I just gave you. Mm -hmm. If you're splitting and if you're lumping, you will come up with hugely different results. And both of them are equally justifiable. Mm -hmm. So there is no single number of species that exist on Earth. Mm -hmm. So there was a, well, 10, 15 years ago, there was a, there was a paper who used some kind of statistical approach to come up with a number of the so-called eukaryotic species, so not taking into account bacteria and archaea, mm -hmm. um, so the, the proper microbes that microbiologists deal with. So all eukaryotes, that is everything that has a proper cell with a nucleus, so plants and, and fungi and animals, um, there are about, they say, eight to nine million species. Mm -hmm. Now, microbial organisms, microbial species, I'm not a microbiologist, but the last number I've heard that was described as species is very ridiculously low. It's, it's on the order of maybe 10,000 or so. Um, mm -hmm. There are other papers who say that in the microbial realm alone, we probably have one trillion species. So one trillion is <laughs> 10 to the power of 12. That's one million times one million. Um, yeah, well, okay. I guess that is not all, you know, you, you, you can't blame all of that on splitting. I'm, I'm certain that microbial organisms are underrepresented and there are, there are many more taxa, many more groups than we have recognized so far. Mm -hmm. We have described by now uh, somewhere between a one and a half and two million species. Most of them not microbial. And of course, if you, well, if you, if you side with the people who think that there are orders of magnitude more, uh, microbial organisms or microbial taxa species, whatever you call them, than non-microbial ones, um, the, the, the biggest gap will be the microbial realm. Mm -hmm. Within the non-microbial realm, it's usually the invertebrates, the insects, um, that are, and the nematodes maybe, um, mm -hmm. we know very, very little about many of these smaller critters. Many of them undoubtedly vanish every single day without them ever being known to science. Mm -hmm. You know, deforestation, particularly of tropical islands, if you, if you have, you know, not very mobile species of, for example, soil organisms, you very likely have different taxa, you might call them species on different islands. If that island then gets, you know, deforested etc you lose all of that and mm -hmm. we don't even know how much mm -hmm. how many of these entities uh, we're losing so i would strongly advise against putting too much emphasis on a on a single number mm -hmm. and i would again take one step back look at the at the patterns of biodiversity i mean these are quantifiable also you can it's not, it's not that you know you can only quantify species numbers no you can quantify biodiversity without using species there are there are approaches for that and particularly if you're thinking of conservation and what we should protect it should be biodiversity at large and not so much whether something is a species or not even if everyone agrees that you know certain populations are different species not all species are the same mm -hmm. there are species who are very unique so if you if you lose for example the aardvark 
or the platypus, there is nothing that is similar to an aardvark or nothing that is that is similar to, to, to a platypus. Mm-hmm. These are very isolated branches in the tree of life, meaning they have no very close living relative. They, Of course, they have a closest living relative, but this closest living relative is far, far away. Mm-hmm. And the common ancestor of these two live tens of millions or or maybe even more uh, um, years ago. So if you lose a platypus, you've lost a whole branch in the tree of life. Mm-hmm. If you lose a tiger, which would be a sad thing, sadly also realistic, but mm-hmm. if we lose tigers, that would be sad. But we still have lions and we have jaguars and we have leopards. Now, I'm not saying they are the same, but they are relatively close to a tiger. Um, in fact, I do the exercise with my students here in the collection sometimes. I give them tiger skulls and lion skulls and let them tell me which is which. It's not easy. Mm. So there is something similar. Losing a tiger is sad and for ecological reasons might even be worse than losing a platypus. But in terms of protecting unique biodiversity, losing a tiger is not the same thing as losing as losing a, a platypus or or an aardvark or an elephant or you know, something something that has no no similar Related species. Extent species. Extent species, yeah. I was just curious what you were saying, that there are ways of quantifying biodiversity without using species. What do you mean by that? For example, you can um, you can use, I mean, you, you have to use some, some kind of entity, but you don't have to rank it at species level. You can use populations. Right. And then you can, you can quantify how different they are from the closest living relative, for example. This is what I meant with the platypus and the and the tiger, uh, there is even a system in place. It's called the EDGE system. Mm-hmm. Um, it's evolutionarily distinct and globally endangered. And so the acronym is EDGE. And it ranks species according to how endangered they are, but also how unique they are. And the combination of the two gives you sort of the conservation priority. Right. A, a highly endangered species will rank higher or more highly on that sequence mm-hmm. in that order than a less endangered one but mm-hmm. particularly the ones that are endangered and unique rank highest um yeah. and i mean this is a hybrid system it still uses species and then mm-hmm. it uses something to quantify the evolutionary distinctiveness and you can you can also do it without the species category you can i mean i cannot go into detail here but there is an approach that is called spatial phylogenetics uh, brent Mischler of um, california is doing great work in botany on that. Mm-hmm. And he's also an expert on species and he has come to similar conclusions as I have. And he's trying to sort of circumvent the need to rank something arbitrarily. He goes mm-hmm. back to the to the raw data, to the grid with the altitude data, sort of in our geography example, mm-hmm. and just using this uh, for, for his analyses. Right. Interesting though how, you know, the public need something like a, a species, although many people don't really know how to define a species, but the idea of species is really, and this, the idea of a spe- number of species, I think can be a, really important to people. They want that number, they want that um, tangible thing. Yeah. Yeah, I guess um, where it can become important, especially with public messaging, is, you know, there's um, the recent IPBES figure of a million species endangered. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, you know, immediately that million is relatable to something else which is the total number of species you know so yeah, yeah. a million depending on how much you like to lump or split could be a larger or smaller proportion of the yeah, of the whole yeah. but yeah I, I guess there's not too much more to say about that 
And it's, I'm, I'm not saying don't ever do that. I mean, this mm, is, yeah. you, you know, you, you need to simplify certain things, but at least in our science, we should be aware that there are, that there are huge problems lurking when you, when and if you use species numbers as raw data, right? Because they are so shaky in that gray area, at least, right? Yeah, yeah. In the conservation world, I think there are those who would say, and maybe this is a kind of an old school argument, especially because I don't know if there's, there's probably a shortage of taxonomists these days. But I remember kind of earlier in my career, a lot of conservationists kind of looked at taxonomy as a kind of a luxury discipline almost or something that really, you know, they, they kind of seem to have the attitude that more people should be on the ground and, you know, putting up fences and uh, controlling invasive alien species rather than, you know, trying to argue about the um, specifics of, of which species is, yeah. is which, despite the fact that most species are not yet described. But what is the situation there? I mean, uh, I'm not I'm not sort of arguing either way, but I'd just be curious to hear your perspective. Well, first of all, I don't think you should play out one against the other. Mm -hmm. Both are necessary. Taxonomy is not primarily about, you know, this is a species and this is not. Taxonomy is about the way getting to, you know, you must be in a position to know enough to even ask that question. Mm -hmm. Whether there is an objective answer to that question or not, you will have done a lot of good science on the way leading to that question. So taxonomy is about biodiversity. Taxonomy is about studying biodiversity, its distribution, and its patterning. Uh, that is relevant to conservation biology mm -hmm. in a way that, that very, very few other disciplines are. So I do think that they're siblings in a, in, in a way. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit sad that taxonomy is often reduced about, you know, these futile discussions of whether there's one species or two species. This is not what taxonomy is about. Um, this is one tiny aspect of taxonomy. One aspect of taxonomy that can be very important, um, also for your career. I mean, if you're working on, on, on worms, probably not, but, mm -hmm. you know, thinking at the other end of the spectrum, there's paleoanthropology. If you describe a new extinct human species, you will have a nature cover and you will be famous for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. If you describe a new subspecies based on the same data, no one will care. <laughs> so mm -hmm. there is also there is also a little bit of an economic and political incentive to sometimes maybe I'm not I'm, I don't want to disparage uh, paleoanthropologists here, but there is so much at stake sometimes. Yeah, um, and another thing is that. Conservation is conservation. There's conservation biology, but conservation is more than biology. It's more than science. Mm -hmm. You know, people like sociologists and politicians uh, work in in conservation biology in, in conservation because this is really a societal enterprise. So, which also means that law is an important dimension of mm -hmm. of conservation. What is being protected by law? If you want an animal to be protected by law or by something equivalent, for example, by the Convention on the International on International Trade in Endangered Species, CITES, um, it needs a name. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't have a species name, it cannot be part of that of that convention, right? Yeah. So you need a name, you need to attach a name to something in order to make it legally visible. There was a there was a, a famous. This is also by now a little bit of an of an old example, but in 1975, I think it was, uh, there was a paper published in Nature, no less, and it was about the Loch Ness monster. It was a description, a taxonomic description of the Loch Ness monster. They showed a photo, 
you know, one of those blurry photographs that allegedly shows the flipper of something like a plesiosaurus mm. or something. Mm -hmm. And they gave it a name. They described it and they gave it a name. And their their rationale was just like with the Tuatara or with the rhinos, we don't well, they said we don't know if Nessie exists or not. Mm. But if it exists, it is certainly rare. And I don't think anyone would object to that one. Um, and so if we if it's rare, it needs protection. But if it's supposed to be protected, it needs a name. So we give it a name. Mm -hmm. And they provided a description. They gave it a scientific name. It was Nessiteras. Nessie is Nessie. Teras is the Greek for monster. So Nessie Teras is the, the mm -hmm. genus. And then Rhombopteryx, which means something like lozenge or diamond-shaped wings or flippers. So it's mm -hmm. a perfectly good description for what they thought Nessie was. It also happened to be an anagram. So if you if you you know put the same letters in a different order, it yeah. reads um, Monster Hoax by Sir Peter S. And Peter Scott was one of the authors. Wow. So they played a prank on nature. Mm -hmm. But there is truth in that. If it doesn't have a name, it doesn't exist legally. And there are real-world examples in which taxonomists are summoned to give their opinion on something, whether it is a species or a subspecies. And this has real-world consequences. The most famous example is a little bird the California gnat catcher. And there is a population, the California one, in the, in the shrubs along the coast of California, that by some taxonomists has been described as a distinct subspecies. Others disagree. So even within taxonomy, as would be expected for something that, you know, these differences come in degrees and where you draw the line, mm -hmm. again, um, whether you are a splitter or a lumper, this happens with subspecies just as it happens with, with species. But the U.S. Endangered Species Act covers subspecies as well, yeah. and this is this 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 population is fairly limited. So, if it is considered a subspecies, it gets a lot of protection by law by the U.S. Endangered Species Act. It also happens to be in in shrubland along the California coast, which is a multi-billion-dollar real estate area. Mm -hmm. So, there are realtors, you know, like vultures soaring, and whether they can they can turn this into a residential area and become filthy rich or not mm -hmm. depends on the fact whether this little bird is considered a subspecies or not. Wow. Mm. So there has been a petition by a law company to the U.S. authorities to settle this issue. So this is just to give you one, exa one extreme example. Mm. One example, uh, what I mean by real-life consequences. This is not something, you know, that is only abstract and, and only touches on you know, uh, intra-scientific uh, arguments or, or or discussions. No, no. In 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 real life, this has this has quite some some consequences. Uh, in this case, there's a lot of money at stake. Oh, those are both fantastic examples. Um, can I ask you one more question before of we course. end off? Uh, okay. Yeah. So yeah, this is quite an important one, especially with you being uh, a geneticist, a conservation geneticist, right? Well, well I, I'm doing some genetics, but I wouldn't. I, I think no no proper geneticist would be happy calling me a geneticist. Okay, all right. Yeah. All right. So, but the question is, um, what difference? to taxonomy have the advances in genetics made? And I'm thinking yeah. especially about um, environmental DNA, and perhaps you can yeah. sort of explain what that is and go into a little bit of detail about that. Yeah. But there might be other advances that I'm just completely unaware of. But I, I, my guess is that, or my sense is that uh, taxonomy has really received a huge boost recently with this kind of, of advance. Is, is that more or less the case? 
Yes, I would, I would argue so. And it's not just the molecular revolution, it's also the morphological or the imaging revolution that is now fanning out. Uh-huh. Because of, um, you know, micro CT imaging, we get to, to have a lot more detail in terms of morphological variability and genetic variability, which means our resolution power has increased manifold. Mm-hmm. So where in former times, we saw two populations and thought, well, they're pretty much the same. We can now zoom in into so much detail, genetically and morphologically, that we find more and more differences, mm-hmm. which means, again, this is this is a, a splitter's heaven. They will find more and more pattern, more and more differences, you mm-hmm. know, more and more patterning uh, of biodiversity. And of course, this leads some to split ever more. And this is why then sometimes you end up with one species being split into 12 or 15 or whatever. But, you know, there is an increase in our knowledge. So we, we, we see something that we, that we hadn't seen before. Um, we know that, you know, distrib- the, the, the distribution patterns of biodiversity are different. They are more detailed um, than we thought they were. Mm-hmm. And this, regardless of whether you uh, classify something as a species or a subspecies, this is something we should be happy about. We learn something more about the world. And there are lots of lots of downstream questions about, you know, ecology, evolution, morphology, etc., that that can work with these with these differences. And, and, and the newly gained insights into into variation and variability. So that is a that is a great thing. This has given us at, at a high level in classification, this has led to many evolutionary relationships being uncovered that were unknown before. Um, again, I'm a mammal person and mammals uh, they were you know at the leading edge of that molecular revolution because some of the first uh, papers on high level uh, relationships of groups, orders or whatever you want to call them mm-hmm. uh, were done on mammals and the mammal tree was was pretty much shaken by these new insights and now it's consent now it's consensus so we know things now that we only know because of the molecular revolution at the level of the species things are a bit more contentious again because your resolution power may be as high as you will you will ultimately have to make a threshold decision somewhere this is not going to go away no matter what you do in other words the genetics the the accuracy does not tell you where to draw the line no, no, it doesn't. It can tell you that what you thought was the same is not, but whether that is mm-hmm. different enough for you to, you know, consider it different subspecies, different species, that is ultimately uh, a decision that that cannot be based on science alone in that gray area. Yeah, yeah. Environmental DNA is a different issue. So environmental DNA is DNA that comes from the environment, not directly from an organism. So you don't need the organism to uh, study its DNA. So for example, Mm -hmm. you find a carcass and then you take a sample and then you analyze it. No, Um, we leave DNA as we go along, quite literally. So if you, if, if you go and swim in a river, Mm -hmm. you know, um, you you don't have to pee into the river, just, you know, some, some skin uh, will make it into the, into the, into the river. And these can be taken out, these get dissolved and the DNA is in the water and you can, you can, you can take samples. I've recently read a paper that they even did it with air. They hmm. just took a bag and captured some air, and then they analyzed the air for DNA, and they and they found the butterflies that had flown there or something like that. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. This is not so much a taxonomic issue. It's more 
of an ecological thing because you can find traces of animals that you didn't even know lived in that area without mm. ever having to find the animal itself. So I remember, for example, I'm, I come from northern Germany. There is the Baltic Sea. The Baltic Sea is brackish water. There are not many marine mammals, mm -hmm. a couple of seals. Every once in a while, there's maybe a dolphin or a porpoise that, you know, strays into it. Um, then came eDNA, and they found that a lot, a lot of more of these small cetaceans, small whale species, must have made it into the into the Baltic Sea without getting noticed. Hmm. Um, a colleague of mine studied tropical mammal diversity, and as a starting point, you need to know what mammals are in the area. Hmm. So you can you can you can put up camera traps along you know paths or watering holes or whatever, and then you go there and you can look at the photos, and that is one way of getting to know what is there. But they had a quite ingenious thought. So what they did was they went to these water pools and they collected leeches. And they cut open the leeches and they took the blood meal that these leeches had in them and they analyzed the blood genetically. And then they found the DNA of the animals the leeches had drawn blood from. And by that, they knew, look, this ungulate or whatever is in the area. We've mm -hmm. never seen it. We've never had it on our photographs. And I mean, I'm not an eDNA specialist, but eDNA can also be used for for different for different things. And mm -hmm. you can now, I think, there are now also approaches of doing quantitative analysis rather than just okay, yes or no, present or absent. Um, there may also be approaches now. I think there are approaches of getting an idea of how many of these individuals were here in the area. So this is exciting stuff, but this is not so much of relevance to taxonomy because you know. You need taxonomy for it because you have to compare the DNA that you find in the river, for example, you need to compare it with a database that tells you this is the DNA of species A or B. If you don't have the species in your data bank, you will not know what DNA right. you found in your river. Right, right. Yeah, so I guess it's other advances in genetics that have, for example, enabled the shakeup of the mammal tree that you yeah. explained earlier on. C could you just um, just end off, maybe explain what that shakeup was? Like, what were the major discoveries, and 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 how, uh, you know, how exactly did genetics inform them? Yeah. So, um, for a long time, it had it had already been known for a long time that many of these major groups of mammals were natural entities. So they were very closely related. So mm -hmm. for example, all carnivorans, all rodents, all primates, etc. But at this level, which of these groups was closely related to which other group? That was often not so clear. We knew that elephants, for example, and sea cows and hyrexes were very close, but we didn't know what else was close to them, for example. Mm -hmm. And then there was a group that was called the insectivores, and it had the shrews and the moles and the hedgehogs, but also African groups like tenrex and, and golden moles in it. And it turned out that these were not nearly closely related. So if you look, if you look at, a, at, at, a, at certain species of tenrex, they look exactly like hedgehogs. Mm -hmm. I have to look very, very closely to see that it is not a hedgehog. But they are not even closely related. They're in completely different branches. Hundreds of millions of years of evolution separate the two. Wow. And this only came out uh, with, with the molecular data. Um, so based on morphology, they were combined yeah. into a single group. And so these, this group insectivora does not exist anymore. Only a, a group of them, you know, the, what remained in that group, but it's not called insectivora anymore. We also learned that the closest living relatives of whales were in fact hippos 
Now there had been there had been some um, some early I think even from the 1950s protein studies that seem to have suggested that, but the diagnostic traits of ungulates are the legs and the, the whales. Of course, they don't have that kind of leg anymore. So um, there are certain bones in the in the ankle joints that are diagnostic of these even-toed ungulates. And since whales have no ankles, uh, you can't see that. In the meantime, fossils have been found from the whale lineage that still show this. So this has been confirmed morphologically nicely. But this was this was one one of the results. And then perhaps even even more surprising, but this is this is a bit technical because these groups are not well known to the general public. But for a long time, it was thought that earthworms were close relatives of arthropods, so spiders and insects, etc. Mm -hmm. And it also turns out they are in completely different branches of the tree of life. And there are groups now that that are together and that are everyone agrees that that they are close relatives mm -hmm. that people hadn't dreamt of 30 years ago. So but this is again this is at a very, very high level. We're talking about groups that have that have been separate for sometimes hundreds of millions of years. Whereas this gray area that I'm describing, you know, we're really zooming in and, and we're talking about tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of years, and sometimes even, even less. So um, these are two very different areas, different regions of the tree of life. And the, the overall classification issue that has been revolutionized is different from the taxonomy, uh, but the taxonomy itself at species level or, or around species level is also being uh, revolutionized by both new molecular approaches and new morphological approaches. But again, this is resolution power. We can, it's like using a microscope where, you know, previously you only had a little lens, magnifying lens, and now you have a microscope. You see a lot more, um, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean that the underlying problems of classification uh, go Very away. easier, right. Okay, excellent. Um, anything else that you wanted to add that I should have covered? No, I think I think we've 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 covered good ground. I think mm -hmm. um, again, the the important thing that if if the listeners take home two messages is first, taxonomy is really sexy, and it's not about you know the question whether this is one or two species. It's a <laughs> it's a foundational and and uh, and really important discipline within the life sciences that everything else in one way or another depends on. And we should we should put a lot more funding into taxonomy because this is really where biodiversity is being described. And uh, the second thing is don't get hung up on species numbers. You know, take them for what they're worth, but keep in mind that there are that there are really fundamental problems with just you know attaching a number like that to to a group or even life as a whole. Next time, I'll be speaking with Cornell University professor Prabhu Pingali about two topics that I've been wanting to address for some time, the Green Revolution and trade-offs between biodiversity conservation and other worthy goals like the alleviation of poverty and hunger. Prabhu has tackled both of these big issues and we'll talk about each of them and how they're related to each other. Please join us.